Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Taylor, and I'm the relational ministry leader here at Life Church. I want to thank you for being here with us today. Uh, before we get into today's message, I want to highlight and go over our monthly giving summary. So if you direct your eyes to the screen, you'll see a few important pieces I want to share with you. We have a budget of $45,000, and for the month of June, you see where we're at. We're at over $57,000 that we have received, and that's by your generosity and your faithfulness and your stewardship financially. And this year already, we are over budget by over $36,000. That's a, yeah. That's nothing but an act of God. Uh, but the number I really want to highlight is the smallest number on the screen. That There are four new people who have decided to sow seeds here at the church. And that number is amazing to see as well. Uh, even if it was one, we thank you all for that. But the next slide we'll show is for the building fund that uh, most of you may know. We've been working on a lot of stuff around the building. Uh, I think I actually saw a drip from the, from the ceiling last service. Usually there's buckets around here. But we've been working on our roof. We've been replacing our HVAC system. And that entire project costs around 250 some odd thousand dollars. Uh, we are already over half of that being met right now. Uh, we've raised, I think it says 130 some odd thousand dollars towards that. We're still looking to raise about 113,000 more. But what's, what's awesome, it's not up there, is that this month alone, we raised $11,500 for the building fund, and we were able to transfer $10,000 from our general fund to this. So this means everything, and this is uh, how incredible, just this is some way to show you how incredible your giving really is. Uh, we try to be transparent with our finances, so if you do have any questions about what this screen says or anything with our finances, you can meet with one of our elders or get in touch with Jennifer, and we would love uh, to help you out with any questions you might have as far as finances go. So last week, if you remember, we talked about James chapter 2. And we opened James chapter 2 and talked about the sin of partiality. And the sin of partiality is essentially when we as the believers make a value-based judgment based solely upon the outward appearance of someone else. Now, James calls this sin, sin, period. He says it's just like sinning uh, with murder or, or adultery. He says that no matter how you look at it, if you have the sin of partiality in your life, you are a transgressor of the law. So there's this severity to the sin of partiality that James gives us. And I want to reframe the way we're thinking about James this week. See, before I've mentioned that James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes to the Jewish Christians outside Jerusalem. I think at this point we can understand that and we can understand how beautiful it is that he's referring to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, his brother, in that context. But I want to start thinking about James as like these tests of our spiritual uh, faith, where we, where we sit spiritually. We've all taken tests, and tests do a few things for us, right? Like a test gives you a result on a specific topic. Regardless of the grade that you like on that test, James tells us here's ways in which our faith can be tested. And I want to start seeing James in this light because I think it will show you how you can understand where you stand with your own faith. But additionally, it reveals to us how, how practical of a book this really is. How easy James is to read will make more sense when we take these tests and we understand how hard they can be, regardless of the outcome. 
Like sometimes you've studied what you think was the best you could have ever prepared for a test and then you get a, a grade back and you're like, oh, that's not what I thought. You feel like you didn't deserve it. But clearly, somewhere along, there was a drip. Did anybody see that? There was a drip right there. There's, there's this clear and concise method that James used to say, okay, your faith can be this practical. You can read James 1 all the way through the end of James 5 and understand, yeah, that's easy to read. But James will challenge you the rest of your life because of how practical of a book that it really is. It might read easy, but when you put yourself in those shoes, do you really read it the same way when you're going through something that James is talking about? I think the answer is no. But James says we're going to talk this week about how faith without works is dead. Now, this topic alone could have more than a sermon series. It is, in fact, an entire belief system of justification. But we're going to present James in a way that we can measure up where our faith stands today and understanding that our faith should produce good works. And James is going to continue to beat home this idea that you can't just talk about something. You have to live it out. And this week he's going to highlight the faith needs to have the actions associated with it. There's a constant theme to James. And I'm going to read over the entirety of Scripture here in just a second. But understand... He keeps saying the same thing for a reason. Because when you read this over, you're like, wow, that's really repetitive. But when you start to live inside of that, in the truth inside of that, you start to understand why he's saying the things the way he's saying them. So we're going to open up to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to read this all the way through so you understand what we're going to talk through, and then I'm going to refer back to this as we go on. So verse 14 starts like this. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different, uh, different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead dead. If I pose this question to you, I would assume we all have the same answer. Is a faith that has no works a saving faith? No. James tells us this. So what is a saving faith? A saving faith is a faith that does not stand alone. It is a faith that always has good deeds come from it. So James says if you can, the first test is if you put yourself here and say, okay, well, I said this, your profession of your faith, if you say, yeah, I believe in God, he's saying, is that enough? 
Because what happens is when some people, we say yes to Jesus, but we never let our lives translate into any good works. And James is saying, if you've never let your life translate from that faith, from that profession, then you've never really possessed saving faith. He says that faith is dead, and he's going to challenge us as we continue to go into this. You have to understand, though, when you believe, it's not just words. You have to believe who Jesus was and what he accomplished on his ministry here on earth and where he is and where he is to come. You have to believe in the whole validity of Scripture in its entirety. You can't pick and choose what you do want to believe. You also have to have a personal relationship with him. And that's where it starts but the actions and the deeds should come from the belief in who Jesus was and what we believe and how we live our lives with him. But understand, there's a little lesson I want to kind of give in the middle of this to understand the severity of your profession of your faith. And that is what Jesus did on this earth was something that we could never do. No matter what works we have ever done, could ever imagine doing, would never justify us before God. That only the works and the obedient, perfect life of Jesus dying on the cross, bearing our sins, that's the only thing that could ever begin to save us. Now, there's this exchange that happens. You see, Jesus took your sins, past, present, and future, and he took them to the cross. He paid a debt that you could never pay no matter what deeds you have. It doesn't add up. Only what Jesus did matters. And when you believe the righteousness of Christ is given to you, your slate is wiped clean, and it's not a dry erase board or a chalkboard where I can write on it but wipe it off afterwards. Your slate is clean, it is untouched, it is without blemish. You could never have been made that pure in the sight of God without what Jesus did. So understanding in the beginning of what you believed, if you said it and you knew what it meant, that your life would translate. What happens today, though, is people say yes to Jesus and they keep living the same life. We say yes to Jesus, but we never change the ways we were when we walked in to the relationship with him. And understand, if you've never been changed by God, could you ever say that your profession of faith was saving faith from the beginning? This is where James gives us a test. We are saved by grace through our faith. Only what God did. James refers to Jesus at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1. The glorious Lord. The reason he is glorious is because he accomplished something nobody could ever try to do. Understand this. And James continues to hash this into our brains that there's no work you could ever do that would matter to your justification before God. The whole church split in the 1500s in the 16th century because of, partly because of this topic alone with justification. Like it's that big of a deal that we need to understand why James is saying this because some people pick and choose where they want to believe in the Bible. And they say, well, Paul said this and James says this, but we have to realize they're not even having the same conversation. James is talking about how the faith that you believed in that saves you is a faith that is not alone. It takes action. It takes what Jesus did. It's not just a simple profession to say, yeah, I believe. It goes beyond that. You could never be presented before God the way that you are now because of this faith. You cannot let your life be translated into nothingness after you've said yes to Jesus. Nothing comes from nothing. 
The profession of your faith is where everything starts and he wants to get us back to this. But realize, when you say yes to Jesus, you are not completely regenerated and made perfect in the moment. You are given new life to begin living life again. Meaning, from the moment you profess it, if your life doesn't begin to change, what was it in the beginning? But we get so confused and we say, well, I said yes to Jesus, so I must be different now. Well, what are you doing to show others Jesus? How are you showing people what your faith is and what you believed in? Because that's where we're getting tripped up is saying, just because you said yes to Jesus doesn't mean that you are a follower. You could have just been a hearer. You could have just listened. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, God sounds good. I'll believe in that. James will convict you later in this passage of Scripture, and we'll talk about that, and it should terrify you with what he calls you, what he calls us to those who just simply believe. So if you take this test, you put yourself in here, and you say, all right, the faith I had in the beginning, does it translate to the way that I'm living? If not, understand that it's not too late to get back on track. Just because you said yes here and your life's over here now doesn't mean you can't get back to this point where you're faithful and your faith translates into good deeds. You're not done. God's not done. He doesn't give up on you. He goes on to say this in chapter in, uh, verses 15. I'm going to paraphrase, but it'll be on the screen uh, for reference. He basically says, imagine walking by someone who has a need and doing nothing about it. Like you see someone begging for food or or clothing, and you say, yeah, man, yeah, I'm really praying for you. I really hope you get that meal. And then you walk away, and you go and do your own thing. We've all probably done that before. Last week, James talked about partiality and how if there's a need that we see, we need to meet the need, but we're so busy with ourselves and where our faith is that we don't show the faith to other people. You see, faith without works is dead. When there's a need and you don't meet it, how are you showing other people who Jesus is? How could you ever share the gospel message if you don't have people? I almost, I just realized there's a coffee cup here. How could you ever share the gospel message without people? Christianity is not alone. It requires us to have interactions with people outside of our circles, outside of the people who are already in their saving faith. Because if somebody new comes in here and there's something that they need, who are we? We're the body of Christ. We're the people that are be, to be showing others our faith. You're to be showing somebody else who's struggling who Jesus is in your life, and you should want to understand who Jesus is in their life. That's faith with works. But faith without works, it's dead. Imagine being that Pharisee who walks by that lame person and does nothing about it, really hoping the Messiah will come or somebody will do something about that. We read that story over and over, and we're like, wow, that, these Pharisees, these pretentious people, are we much different sometimes? That's a conviction for us all. It's that there's times where we ne neglect a need. We neglect other people. We don't show other people our faith. And then people say, yeah, well, I know who Christians are. They're the people that abuse me for the way that I live. Listen, we don't have to accept sin. We have to love the people, though. And James talks about this unconditional love later on. But the whole point is that if there is a work to be done and you're doing nothing about it, you're just babbling. Your faith doesn't mean anything unless there's action behind it. 
And recently I had a conversation with a, a couple who were a part of the beginning of Life Church. They're now uh, in Colorado, but they're Dr. Steve and Twyla Lee. And um, I had this phenomenal uh, kind of conference, phone conversation with them. And we were talking specifically about marriages, but I kept thinking, like, it wasn't just marriage. It's relationships we were talking about. And as I share the story, I want you to understand that it's also kind of about our relationship with our faith as well. But we were talking about a house. And when you're newly married, uh, you buy your first home, or if you've ever been at the place where you've moved into a new house, everything's great. Like, there's new spaces to explore. The, the, sh- the first shower you take is different. The first meal you cook tastes different. The way you organize your living room and decorate your walls is all different and new. There's a sense of newness about this relationship, right? There's a sense of newness about being married. There's a sense of newness about saying yes to Jesus. God is great when I say yes to him. When my life starts again, God is great. But understands what happens to a house when you buy it. It needs upkeep. It needs maintenance. And if you put a Band-Aid on something, the problem's only going to get worse. If you neglect to confront something in your marriage only going to get worse. If you neglect to confront something in your faith from when you professed it, it's only going to get worse. We have to take the time to understand that if we neglect the things that are taking us away from the beginning moment, that it's going to cost us more time. It's going to cost us more money. It's going to cost us more resources, more energy, more stress. It does us no good because when we say, yeah, this house, this brand new thing is great, What happens when you have that first trial or that first testing? This goes back into James 1. Mike talked about this. When your faith is tested, I think you'd understand where you are with saving faith in the first place. James says in chapter 1, let your faith produce perseverance so that you may be made mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Let that testing of your faith run its course. It doesn't say run away, when often that's our response in both relationships and with our faith. God was so good, marriage was so good, but I don't know how it could be right now. I don't know how he could be right now if my life is like this. James says if you put yourself in this test, you'll understand whether your faith was saving faith or not because you'd be able to bear up under those circumstances and understand that I can see the other side and I can trust in the other side because I know who God is. And if not, was it saving faith? I want you to think about that analogy as you go forward that our faith in the beginning, just because it was great then doesn't mean that it can't be now, but we have to let our lives translate into active faith. He goes on in verse 18 and he says, but someone would say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. There's two kinds of faith he's talking about here one that you talk about, and one that you can be about. I was laughing as I was uh, preparing this message because um, anybody had a door salesman come up to your door and knock about something you know you don't want to buy? Yeah, I hope so. If not, it's coming. I thought I lived in the middle of nowhere in Ossian, and it turns out that it's not really the middle of nowhere because in the middle of the day, this young man is at my doorstep, and he's got a big old smile, and he's holding this clipboard, and I'm like, my kid's crying, my daughter's hungry, I'm starting to cook food, and I'm like, I really don't want to do this right now. So I'm polite, I have a conversation with the man, and he goes, are you the dad of the house? And I'm like, yeah. 
Like, I'm in the place now where it's like, I didn't think it was that apparent that I'm the dad now. I still feel like I'm the kid. But with our conversation, we start talking, he recognizes I've got kids. He recognizes through the way that I conducted myself and the interactions with him, he could say, yeah, you're a dad. Might have been offensive, but he knew I was a dad. The same should be true with when you call yourself a Christian. That the interactions you have with other people when you walk up to them, they should be like, yeah, I can tell you're a follower of Christ. And James says, if you're not there, faith was dead to begin with. But then I had to think back as I'm writing through my sermon and thinking about this instance. It's like, I didn't realize how much I portrayed I was a dad through the way that I talk, the way that I carry myself, not to mention the sandbox and the trampoline and the swing that are outside in the middle of nowhere in the country. This guy was able to see there's somebody here who is this. If we're Christians, we should be doing the same thing. It's not different and it's not hard. But the world is hurt by Christians who say they are and possess nothing from it. They say they're a Christian. They profess they're a Christian but possess none of that faith. And that's where people become hurt with their relationships with God. And I imagine, like, if that guy came to my house and he couldn't tell that I was a dad, number one, I would question his eyesight. And number two, I have to question myself, like, why am I not talking about my kids or in this interaction? Because I end up buying, like, I don't know how many dollars worth of books from this guy for my kids in that interaction. It was this mutual, like, yeah, man, I'm going to support you. You support me. Thanks for calling me a dad. So I bought books for my kids, and I'm thinking back, like, if I didn't tell them that I was a dad or I didn't show them that I was a dad, then I'm failing my kids. Imagine walking into my house not knowing that I had kids and then seeing kids there. That would shock you. We do that with our faith. We walk around and people are like, oh, that guy was mean, bitter. Yeah, well, he comes to church on Sunday. The way we carry ourselves and conduct ourselves should be evident to the people around us. And James talks about this work. He says, faith without works is dead, but these works are not obligations. Like you came to church today, hopefully not because you should, but because you love God and because you love people. The work he's talking to should always stem from love. That's why Jesus gave us that royal law we talked about, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, the greatest commandments. Because if we're following that and abiding in that, we wouldn't need the laws and the works to begin with because everything from love would transform us. Love is not an emotion. I mentioned this. It is more than an emotion. It's an action. But it also takes work. It's a work of I love you regardless of what you believe or who you are. I don't have to agree with you. I don't have to accept the things that you're doing, but I've been told that I have to love you, and I'm going to show you that love that Jesus shows me to this day. If you've ever been in a relationship like that, you understand there's a commitment to make. There's a sacrifice that has to be made, especially when it comes to marriage. I use this as an example because it pertains to my life. But if you love someone, you're willing to sacrifice for that person. Jesus paid a debt we could never pay. So my love for doing his work is because you did it for me, I owe you this. There's an obligation with the love, right? But before, people were doing all these works of the law, doing all these things that could never 
atone for what Christ atoned for. We should be willing to sacrifice. We have to be willing to say, I'll give up my desires and my needs and my ideas for this person because I love them. In a relationship, right? Like you've never heard of a happy relationship where people just continue to disagree with one another and never sacrificed anything, right? Like when people aren't willing to bend or change their ways or love unconditionally, things aren't healthy. A healthy relationship with Jesus means the same thing as a healthy relationship would mean in the confines of a marriage or a friendship. That without condition you love someone, that you're willing to give up your ways for the ways of someone else. That's the sacrifice that we are to make. When you professed your faith in Christ, I hope it wasn't part of it. I would assume it was all of it. But if it was all of it, it would translate your entirety to be living for Christ and so that others could see who he is. I know it's repetitive, but these are the things that James keeps talking about. What was broken from the beginning of time, from the fall of humanity, from the sin of Adam and Eve, was a relationship with God. What Jesus restored and made perfect by his work on that cross and his life on earth was a relationship with God. There was a restoration in the relationship. And I think if we look through the lens of our faith as a relationship with other people, we could begin to understand the severity of getting through what you think is right and doing what is right. Going back to that moment to say, yeah, I know I said I believed here, but I haven't really done anything about it. Understand it's not too late to start right now. But Jesus, the Bible, Scripture teaches us that we have to be recognizable by the fruit that we bear. And James con- condemns a dead faith. Like if I'm an apple tree, but I'm, I don't know, if I'm carrying tomatoes, you would be deceived. It wouldn't make sense. If I'm claiming to be something, the fruit that I bear should be evident to the other people. Scripture teaches us that in Matthew 7, Matthew seven twenty, that we should be recognizable by our fruit. We have to stop being selfish. But understand this too. Well, okay, what happens if my relationship is strained? My relationship wasn't perfect. I had a new house, but I didn't know how to take care of it. I didn't know how to change my ways. Listen, I'll use a light example first. If I tell my daughter she can't have a piece of chocolate and she gets mad and throws a fit, am I still her father? Yes. I hope so. She doesn't see it that way, but she is. If my wife and I have a disagreement, am I still a husband and she's still a wife? If you and anybody in your relationships, you've had a strain in your relationship, maybe there's been a falling out, doesn't mean that you still are not that person, that role in that person's life, or that they're not that role in your life. When you said yes to Jesus and you believed, understand that even if you've fallen off track, you're still a child of God. We forget that whole part. And as a church, we tell people that they couldn't be a child of God if they're living that way, even if they have professed over here. And he's going to talk about this when he talks about Abraham. And I love the way he talks about Abraham. Paul does it too when they talk about faith. Abraham's story is incredible. But listen, if your faith does not translate to good deeds, it's dead. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. When Satan was in the wilderness tempting Jesus for 40 days, he recognized who he was. He even quotes scripture. 
doesn't mean he did anything for the kingdom of God. When Jesus walks up to a man filled with demons, he's possessed by demons, the demons recognize him as the son of man. Doesn't mean he did anything for God. These demons believe in who Jesus was. They know what's happening, but they're not doing anything. James is saying, this is terrifying. He says that if you say you believe and you do nothing, that is idle work, that is the devil's work. Because even the demons believe and they shudder. So if nothing else convicts you to have a faith with works, let that convict you. James says even the demons believe the same thing. Even the demons do the same work for the kingdom. Faith without works is dead. And this is where he goes to talk about Abraham in verse 21. And I'm going to read this, verse 21 through 24. I'm going to kind of bookmark a few things so we can understand this. Because I want to paint a picture. He says in verse 21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Tab that in your brain. That's Genesis 22. When Isaac was taken up, Genesis 22. You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did, and the scripture was fulfilled. This is Genesis 15, okay? So we've got Genesis 22 is Isaac, Genesis 15, right? He says a scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This is the timeline. Genesis 12 was where God called, and I'm going to call him Abraham because that's how we know him. In this time, he was referred to as Abram before his name changed. But Genesis 12, God called Abram and told him to leave everything behind. And he did. He believed in God and he left everything behind. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham says, I don't have an heir to my estate. I don't have anybody to take anything from me. I'm going to have to give it away. God says, I'll give you offspring, and I will make your offspring as many as the stars if you could count them. God makes a covenant with Abram, Abraham, and he credits that belief to him as righteousness. But James says, the scripture was fulfilled over here in Genesis 22 when Abraham took his son Isaac up to be sacrificed on the altar. Genesis 12 was when Abraham professed that he would believe, and there were actions that followed. He left everything behind. He believed that God would give him a son. He took that son to offer him on the mountain at the altar. But did Abraham live a perfect life from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22 and do exactly what God told him? God told Abraham, I will give you offspring. And Abraham was like, well, my wife can't have kids. So how is that going to work? We know the story. He goes to have a kid with Hagar, names him Ishmael, and God's like, that's not the one. I'm going to open your wife's womb. They're in their 90s. And I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to name him Isaac, which means he laughs because they laughed at the fact that God would open a womb in the age of 90. So Abraham got off track with what he thought God was going to be doing in his life. And he tried to fix things and create this own outcome. And then when it didn't turn out to be the way that God designed, he goes, uh-oh. He has to send this son Ishmael away. And he has this son Isaac now. And in faith, he takes that son that God promised him 
that miracle of a son, and now he's supposed to take him up and offer him on the altar? Think about your life in this context. You said yes, and maybe some works translated from it, but then you've maybe fell off a little bit. You tried to do things your own way, fixing things that only God could ever fix. Understand that if you're in that place, you can still be in that moment where you can be faithful and give God everything that you ever had to show him that the faith that you had in the beginning was saving faith. Because without Abraham's admission of faith and actions from Genesis 12, Genesis 22 would not have happened. That faith had to be active. That's why scripture was fulfilled over here. Think about your life in that context. We beat ourselves down today and say, yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes, so I couldn't come back to a church. People are just gonna judge me. If Abraham felt that way, we wouldn't read the story the same. God wouldn't have considered his faith righteous to him, but the reason it was is because his faith had works behind it. I'm gonna invite the worship team up and I wanna kinda close on this note. Abraham, understand this, was he ever considered unjustified though during that time? No. Was anything ever taken away from Abraham's salvation because he made an error along the way? No. When we slip up or we make mistakes along our way from the time we've said yes to Jesus, if it's saving faith, we would get back on track and understand who God is in our lives, that we haven't lost that role to be called a child of God. But what matters to me, and I think what, what hit home with this, has to do with what we talked about last week, the sin of partiality that we show. If we are the believers, and James is saying don't show partiality to other people, when someone comes into these doors, you don't know who they are, where they're from, or what their story is. But how are we showing our faith with works to the person who's struggling in a relationship with Jesus? How are we showing someone who God is maybe for the first time? Maybe for the first time in 20 years. How are we being stewards of what James is telling us to do? That faith without works is dead. How is someone walking in here and knowing who Jesus is? Remember, Christianity is not Christianity alone. It requires a faith that is not alone. It requires people. It requires a relationship with Jesus. It requires a relationship with people. But I can remember the day I said yes, December 17th, 2017, not that long ago. I can remember that day when my wife and I walked into a church. And faith with works was evident because I was shown Jesus through the way somebody else was living and they allowed me to know who Jesus was through the relationship with them. They were not playing Jesus. They led me to him. They were being used by their faith, by the grace that God could only give us to show me and my wife who Jesus was. And I can remember the specific instance. I can remember the smell of the building. I can go back and tell you that because of who the people were that had faith, that translated into works, that because of their faith, I got a little glimpse at what I needed to be like. And now my whole goal is to get people to understand who Jesus is in my life because I want you to know who Jesus is in your life and I want you to show Jesus to somebody else. That's how we share the gospel. It happened to me. I was a living product of what it means for someone to live out their faith. We can't taint that name. So would you please stand so I can pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence. 
Lord, I pray that we can surrender to the idea that faith without works is dead, but to know that you're not done working in us so long as we give our all to you, that we surrender to you, Lord, and I pray that's true. For every person who bears the name Christian, that it would be evident to others that we serve you. God who loves, who holds us true to what he said. God, I pray that other people can come to know you through the relationships that we're open to by showing Jesus to other people. Let our faith become evident, Lord. Show us and reveal to us how we can make our faith tangible for even just one person. So Lord, I pray that we can understand that we're already equipped to do your work. Let us continue to be obedient to what you said, regardless of the consequences. Let us surrender to the faith that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
I want you to think through that this week. Is your faith translating to good deeds? Trust in God. Trust in his promise for your life. I pray that we as the church would be able to show others who Jesus is and help them get to that point. Be encouraged and understand that when you said yes, you let your life translate. Understand you're always called. If you've ever fallen off track, it's never too late to get back on. We're here as a community of believers, the body of Christ, to do this together so you're not alone. We do this with people. So I want to thank you all for joining us here today. Pray for traveling mercies as you go your separate ways. Uh, we want to see you back next week. We love you. God bless.